Judgment Studios. The Michelle Obama Podcast is out now on Spotify. This series brings listeners inside the former First Lady's most candid and personal conversations, showing us what's possible when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to open up and focus on what matters most. Joining the former First Lady is an array of special guests, including Marion and Craig Robinson, Conan O'Brien, Valerie Jarrett, Michelle Norris, and Dr. Sharon Malone. Episodes focus on relationships that shape us, from siblings and close friends to partners, parents, and mentors, to our relationship with ourselves and our health. Listen free at Spotify.com slash Michelle Obama. Get ready, Milwaukee, because Snap Judgment Live is coming to the beautiful Paps Theater April 21st. Laugh, cry, laugh some more. The world's top storytellers, backed by the beat of Bell's Atlas. Get tickets while you still can at snapjudgment.org. Okay, so to drink green tea, real matcha green tea, it's a sensual, earthy, centering experience. Traditionally, you take the powdered tea essence, you place it in a ceramic tea cup, you gently pour in the steaming water, and you stir it just so with a bamboo whisk. The process itself is a meditation. But this morning, I'm late. So I'm stirring clumps of green mash with a fork in a plastic Harry Potter cup, screaming for the kids and the dogs to please get in the car. And for a moment, passing by a mirror, I know I am wrong. I've disrespected this time, this tea, this place. My teacher, the one that passed this ritual on to me as sacred, She'd be appalled. She knew, she understood. Do this one thing correctly, properly. Do this and watch everything else fall into place. And so now, on Stamp Judgment, I'm going to be a better person. From WNYC, we proudly present The Perfect Cup. Amazing stories of what it tastes like to do something the right way. My name is Glenn, no cream, no sugar, Washington, because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now then, we're going to begin our Perfect Cup episode with the story of an obscure beverage that certain misguided individuals drink routinely in place of tea. It's called coffee. And today we're partnering with the acclaimed author Dave Eggers to bring you the story of coffee and adventure set in the highlands of... Well, you know what? We're going to let producer Joe Rosenberg break it down. Snap judgment. So the other day, 
we had the opportunity to bring someone into the studio. So uh, can you hear me or, or only can hear or? Yeah. Perfect. Okay, we're all set. His name is Mokhtar Akanshali. Am I even saying your name right? Because I've just been calling you Mokhtar. Mokhtar. Yeah, and I'm, Mokhtar. I'm going for the full... It's easy. It's just, it's, uh, it's Mokhtar. Mokhtar is Yemeni-American. He grew up right here in the Bay Area. But he says that when he was a kid, the center of his family's world was still back in Yemen. Because that's where his grandfather, Hamoud, the family patriarch, still lived. And his grandfather, every time Mokhtar saw him, he loved to tell Mokhtar his own life story, his autobiography. Every time he says it, he says it with the same amount of enthusiasm and, and, and just in, in heart. The story begins in Yemen, in the western province of Ib, where Mokhtar's great-grandfather was sent to prison over a land dispute. So my great-grandfather died in prison. And before he died, he asked for one of his children to come, and that was Hamoud, my grandfather. Only Hamoud wasn't the eldest son, just the favorite. And in a fit of jealousy, his older brothers denied him his share of the family lands. So Hamoud decided to leave home. But before he left, he asked his brothers for a favor. He wanted them to help him buy a donkey, and they refused. One of my grandfather's brothers told him the donkey was worth more than him. So my grandfather walked by foot from our village in Yemen all the way to Saudi Arabia, to Mecca. Hamoud was only 13 years old, just a kid, but he managed to get a job selling well water on the side of the road to pilgrims. And he started sending money back to his widowed mother. And in the messages, in the letters, he always ended with, this is from the boy worth less than the donkey. Hamoud ended up immigrating to the U.S., where he founded a series of successful convenience stores. Eventually, he was able to retire and return to Yemen a wealthy man. And he began this venture of building this giant, I want to call fortress, castle on this hill. Mokhtar still remembers the first time he visited his grandfather in Yemen at his home on the hill. The phrase Mokhtar uses to describe him is larger than life. Um, majestic, funny. It's hard to just, like, to, to describe in a few words, but he might be at a wedding in one city for two hours, then, then drives to another city for a funeral, then drives to another city to figure out a, some tribal dispute. And you go in these giant rooms with several hundred people, you know, these giant gatherings, and everyone talking loud, and, and then he walks in, and everyone just, like, stops, you know, and he greets everyone, and they all reply back in unison, and he goes and shakes everyone's hand, and there are people kissing his hand, and kissing his head, and, like, when he leaves, you hear people talk about him and with so much respect. What was yeah? What was your reaction to that? Oh man, I want to be. I want to be like that. Like how do you, how does someone get, become like that? Mokhtar wanted to live up to his grandpa's standards, get more involved in the Yemeni community, maybe even become a lawyer. And so, by the time he was in his early twenties, he, well, actually, he was failing miserably, at, at least by his own measure. He was stuck working at a condo in San Francisco as a doorman. Oh my gosh. They called us lobby ambassadors to make us feel special. But I'm getting older now. My friends are almost graduating college. Some of them are done, done already. And it's like, I knew I, I knew I didn't want to do. I didn't want to be a lobby ambassador. But there isn't even a light at the end of the tunnel. There's no like direction. So one day I'm there and one of my friends texts me and she says, hey, there's a statue of a weird Yemeni guy next to your work drinking coffee. And I, didn't, I didn't know what she was talking about. So on his lunch break, Mokhtar went across the street and entered this courtyard he had never noticed before. So 
So I go in and I see this massive statue of this beautiful Arab looking man. And he had this cup of coffee that he was pointing towards like the sky. And I saw that, I'm like, this is strange. Then Motar looked down at the statue's plaque. It said that was there, it was there from 1900. So over hundred years. I'm like, well, this guy's been here for so long. And then I walked into the lobby. The lobby had these beautiful signs, Arabian coffee, the best in the world. And so as soon as I saw that statue, I started looking up coffee, Google and research and going to the library, getting books. And so I, the more I researched, the more I was, I was like, this is really interesting. How come I don't know about this stuff? Mokhtar learned that the coffee cherry was first discovered sometime in the ninth century in the highlands of Ethiopia. But back then, they didn't drink the kind of coffee we drink today. Instead, they would simply use the seeds of the cherry, the beans, to make tea. The first country to brew coffee, real coffee, was Yemen. And it turns out the oldest place in the world to actually cultivate coffee intentionally was my home province in Ib. So now I'm like, hold up, hold a minute. Like This whole thing of coffee, this is actually from my family's heritage. The very first book to describe modern coffee was written by a 15th century Yemeni monk named the Monk of Mocha. Like a kind of Middle Eastern Johnny Appleseed, the monk and his disciples spread the practice of brewing coffee all over the Middle East. And for 200 years, merchants from the farthest corners of the globe came to the port of Mocha in Yemen to buy and drink the best coffee in the world. But over the centuries, Yemen had lost its pride of place, supplanted by Guatemala, Ethiopia, and all the other modern beloved coffee capitals. Now, instead of making specialty coffee, Yemen's beans were simply all mixed together and sold in bulk for dirt cheap prices. And Yemen's role in the birth of coffee was all but forgotten. If only, Mokhtar thought, someone could go to Yemen and find the best of the forgotten coffee farmers and somehow get their beans into stores, Yemen and its coffee could be restored to greatness. So within 48 hours of seeing the statue, I remember telling my friends I was going to bring back the ancient art of Yemeni coffee. There was just one small problem. Did you, at that point in your life, drink coffee? No. Had you ever owned your own business, done any kind of import? N- no idea. And and and, and it's, it's safe to say you haven't been, you hadn't been to like a coffee farm. I mean, I can't say that I knew what coffee trees looked like. And so Mokhtar embarked on what is perhaps the most ancient and honorable of all business practices. Faking it till you make it. He started by going to coffee tastings. I remember the first one I walked into. It's, it's really elaborate. And it's very serious. And so this girl looked at me. She's like, yeah, I taste uh, pink Starburst. I'm like, what? This other guy was like, I have like, I, I a hint of baby carrots here. And then the one that really lost me, he looked me like straight in my eye and looked at me and said, I taste uh, this coffee. It's, um, it's too passive aggressive for me. And I'm like, he looked at me, I'm like, I said, yeah, yeah, definitely. I totally see that. <laughs> I like just like lie down my teeth, just like trying to like, just trying to stay, you know, in that space. But of course, what Mokhtar really wanted to do was find a way to visit the coffee farms in Yemen and taste that coffee. And here's where he got really lucky because he managed to strike up a friendship with a local expert who worked for the Coffee Quality Institute named Willem Boot. And he told me he was going to Yemen to do work there with USAID. And I can just... You know, tag along. And I'm like, this is perfect. And I'm sure he knew I, I didn't know half the things I was saying. Uh, and he looked at me and said, you know, okay, if you're serious, 
first you got to do the take the coffee Q course. He's like, become a Q grader. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. No idea what that was. He said, you have to go to the SCAA conference. Sure. Yeah, I'll do that. Again, no idea. And, and then you're going to go to Yemen with me. I'm like, great. I'm, I'm, I'm sold. The plan was to tour some of Yemen's most remote coffee farms, observe and consult on local farming practices, and get the farmers to provide samples of their coffee cherries. Then Willem would take those samples back to the U.S. for testing to see if any of them just might qualify as specialty coffee. And so, a few months later, Mokhtar joined Willem and another coffee expert named Camillo on a plane bound for Yemen. But the day we got to Yemen, the head of USAID told Camillo and Willem they had to leave on the next flight out. This was a tricky time for Yemen. It was the wake of the Arab Spring, and the Houthis, a northern rebel group, had been agitating for more autonomy. So it probably wasn't the best idea for Westerners to go touring around the highlands. Mokhtar could stay, since he was Yemeni, but the coffee trip was officially over. After all, Mokhtar didn't really know enough to be able to talk to the farmers, much less convince them to hand over samples. I was like, okay, the gig is up. Like, I obviously don't know anything about coffee or farming or exporting or importing or anything. And so I was going to book my flight to leave. And then I, I just thought to myself, and I thought, you know what, let me just try to finish this month. And this is where Mokhtar's faking it till you make it strategy gets a little morally gray. So I didn't lie. So I didn't say I was part of the Coffee Quality Institute. Uh, I just said that I worked with the Coffee Quality Institute. You know, I work with, you know, experts like Willem Boot. Because in, in Yemen, uh, when you're an outsider, they assume that you know everything. Which means he also had to look the part of the savvy Western coffee specialist. And I bought this, like, leather-bound journal with, like, a string you tie around it. And it looked like something out of, like, Indiana Jones, right? And I had these old, like, 1941 wire-framed hexagon glasses and my watch. I had this watch that, it wasn't so expensive, but it looked like it was expensive. And so I tried to walk on this very thin line. So with his hazy credentials and his hexagon glasses, Mokhtar managed to convince one of the farmers, a farmer named Yusuf, to let him come visit his village in a place called Haima in the Western Highlands. Up until now, Mokhtar had only been in the big cities. And it's kind of like you go into a, into a portal, and now you're in this like Narnia world, this huge, vast valley below you, and these terraces and these villages perched on top of these mountaintops. You almost can't tell their, their villages. You almost think it's part of the mountain. And I remember just being blown away. And so I asked, and I asked them, and they said that, yeah, all of this used to be coffee 20 years ago, even 15 years ago. But for the first hour of driving down this, on this dirt, these dirt paths, it was just qat. Qat is a plant that people in parts of the Middle East and East Africa like to chew on. It gives you a mild high. The drug has long played a role in Yemeni culture as a way to socialize and get conversation flowing. Recently, though, the consumption of cod has exploded. And in this valley, as with much of Yemen, most of the coffee trees were now replaced with cod plants. And I, and I asked why. They said, well, you know, for us, we don't want to grow it, but we have no choice because it's so profitable. And I said, well, what if somebody can give you guys more money for coffee? And they said, oh, of course we would switch. You know, and we, we, every time we, we take a co coffee plant out, we feel sad because that's something our ancestors, you know, placed on this land. And if it wasn't for the, the mounts I have to feed, I wouldn't think about taking that out. And then we finally get to this village and it's one last part of the mountain range. And, and they told me, see, this is, our, this is the last place for coffee. 
and when Mokhtar stepped out of the car into the village, the villagers were incredibly welcoming. They were eager to find out if their coffee was somehow special. Not just special, but valuable. A way, perhaps, to lift themselves out of poverty. When I walked into the village, everyone started following me. The whole village, the kids, the people, everyone's looking at what I'm doing, how I'm talking, looking at my watch, looking at my ring, everything about me. And then the moment I mentioned Institute Coffee, these buzzwords, they assume that when I look at coffee trees, I can see the matrix just because I'm from the outside. So I walk down to a, to a tree and I, I start touching the leaves and like looking at the leaves. I, I'm probably, I might even smell it, I don't know. Just to see what, just to pretend I know what I'm, what I'm doing. And so one of the, uh, one of the, I think Yusuf comes up to me. He's like, hey, Mokhtar, I'm sorry. I don't want to bother you, but um, the coffee trees are actually over there. And he points somewhere else. He tells Mokhtar that what he's smelling, it's an olive tree. And I don't know where it came and saved me. I looked at him and I said, Yusuf, I know, I know these aren't coffee trees, but they're in close proximity to coffee trees and they affect its health. Mokhtar would look this up later and it turns out it's true, but he didn't know that then. And at that point, I'm like, okay, I, I need, I, I told myself I need to be quiet, you know, and just try to learn as much as I can from anyone around me. But he was in for a surprise. Because even when he decided that he would listen rather than talk, it turned out that the villagers didn't know that much either. They knew how to grow the trees. They were good at that. But the coffee part, not so much. So I'm like, okay, great. I'm in this coffee village. They're going to give me some amazing coffee. So they bring out this like this thing that it was like a, looked like it was murky brown. And so I'm drinking it full of sugar, and I realize... It wasn't really coffee, it was the cascara, the husk. In other words, it was just tea. They didn't actually brew anything. This village, where some of the very first coffee trees in the world had been cultivated, no longer knew what coffee actually was. They didn't know how their own coffee tasted. And so they, they all looked at me, what do you think of this coffee? And I just couldn't tell them. And then when they showed Mokhtar how they harvested their cherries, he could tell right away even with his limited knowledge, that they were doing almost everything wrong. For example, for the coffee to taste any good, you're supposed to wait to pick the cherry until it's very ripe and red. Um, so I noticed that they were picking it, they would strip pick it, so they weren't waiting for the red cherries. And so you might have a coffee that was picked by an amazing farmer, but it's no longer a special coffee. This was especially bad for Mokhtar. It meant it was going to be much harder for him to find samples that were actually ready for testing. So I'm going around, and every single person who has coffee cherries, they're all green, yellow, mixed. But there was an old man sitting under a coffee tree so peacefully. He had on this, like, nice Yemeni hat. He just seemed really happy there. And then I saw his cherries. And they were all a beautiful, deep red. And so I asked them, who's that? And they said, that's Malik. Yusuf explained that he was one of their most experienced farmers, a man who truly loved his work. Meanwhile, Malik just sat there saying nothing, letting his cherries do all the talking. And so I went up to him and he just kind of looked at me, kind of smiled and he shook my hand. And so I told Yusuf, I said, uh, hey, bef before I leave, I want, one of I want the samples that I get, I want one of the samples to be his cherries and if you could keep it separate. But he almost seemed doubtful about me. Was anyone else doubting you? 
I mean, they, for them, they just wanted, they kept asking me, can you buy our coffee? And Yusuf, particularly, right before I left the village, said, please, like, let us know if you know anyone interested in our coffees. We are ready to work. We are ready to change. And, and it's not even out of, out of eagerness. They're out of, out of survival. Yeah, but doesn't that put you in, like, a moral quandary at this point? Because, you know, the, the fake it till you make it thing, that's all well and good when it's just your ass that's on the line. But now it's like, even if you aren't committed to buying their coffee, it, it, it's almost like you're kind of dangling out this vision of the future that you don't know that you can deliver on because you're not the person they think you are. So, I mean, like, what are you thinking as you're driving away from the village? Oh, that's definitely a heavy question, Joe. Um, yeah, here I am telling them what their future can become like if they did these things and changed this way of doing that. But I had never done this before. I just was just terrified the idea of just like, one day everyone's gonna find out that I don't know anything yet. And even before I left Yemen, my, my grandfather said, don't make promises you can't keep. Because his biggest thing, my grandfather, is you can be the richest person in the world. Your biggest asset is your word. That is your honor. You, can, you can't break it. And I, I've promised these people. They've invited me to their homes. They've fed me. You know, and, and they, 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 we're friends now. You know, where am I going to go? Uh, how can I turn my back against them now? I've already gave them so much hope. And I think a part of me was like really like inside, probably angry at myself for doing that. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. I'm having a hard time answering it. Mokhtar ended up taking 32 samples from a variety of villages back to the U.S. to be brewed and taste tested by Willem. If they did well, that meant the farmers could grow specialty coffee. But if they didn't, then they were stuck where they were before, selling more and more cot and ripping out their coffee trees until there were none left. Well, it's it's interesting. Like when I when I saw the coffees on the table in the cups, you know, it was the first time I, I was like I knew these coffees. I, I they were from these trees that they picked, and I I went to each village. Like I would see a coffee, and I was like I know these people. This tasting, this was the Q grading that Willem had been talking about earlier. The idea was that Willem, the Q grader, along with two others, would taste all thirty-two of these coffees without knowing which was which. Then he would make notes and rank each one between 0 and 100. In order to rank a specialty coffee, in other words, better than your average Starbucks or Pete's, a coffee would have to score higher than 80. Over 85 would be really good. But the goal now was just to get to 80 points. Then Willem goes around and he begins to taste all the coffees. It's about 45 minutes to go through this process before he even begins speaking. He just he slurps, starts to write down things next one the next one and i can't even see his reaction he's he's he has an incredible poker face and so at the end he's going through each coffee with me and it's really bad i mean he's like this is too woody this has a baggy taste this has a cigarette defect this is phenolic this tastes like rubber this is old i'm like oh my god none of these coffees the first 19 weren't even weren't even 80 so that's it you know like these farmers like what am I supposed to tell them now like they actually like some of them it took a lot for them to like believe in this that wasn't to Malik's coffee Malik was the farmer from that first village the one sitting under the tree 
So again, you're supposed to have like a poker face. You're not supposed to have any reaction. But I remember I looked at him when he was drinking every coffee, every cup. That one, he made like a weird face. And I was like, oh my God, I can't. Like, does he like it? Does he hate it? I don't know. And so Mokhtar, he tried it himself. I'll never forget that coffee. I'll never forget it. It was it was just like explosion of like bananas and papaya, sweet lingering aftertaste. Like I finally, I, that was the first coffee that I, I drank and I'm like, I realized this is what they're talking about. When the testing was over, coffees from three different villages scored over 90, including Malik's. I mean, as soon as we finished cupping with Willem and that coffee scored that high, I, all I can think about was, all I saw was his face. Now, when Snap continues, Mokhtar returns to Yemen and discovers that all of that that you just heard, all of that was the easy part. The Perfect Cup episode, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Perfect Cup episode. When last we left our hero, he had no idea what was brewing. Snap Judgment. After the coffee tasting with Willem, Mokhtar realized that his crazy coffee plan, it just might work. Now he just had to get his 90-plus Yemeni coffee into stores. Luckily, Willem told him that if he went back and got more samples, he'd be able to showcase them at the big annual coffee conference in Seattle, where they'd be sure to find buyers. That meant these villages, the ones that scored really well, they could start upgrading their methods and producing specialty coffee right away. So a few weeks later, Mokhtar was back in Yemen. And now that he knew what to look for, he was sure he could find even more great coffee in other villages. So I went to this area called Bura in the far uh, western part of Yemen near the Red Sea. And then I went eastward to this area called Haraz. And then you go down a little further, you go to Damar and you go to Ans and Anis and Utma. Uh, I went to Iryan, Sa'fan, Bani Matar, to Bani Ismail, and then also Udain, which is the birthplace of Yemeni coffee. But the village he was most eager to get back to was Malik's, whose coffee had scored so high. And yeah, surely enough, he was under his coffee trees, him and his wife. And so I told him, your coffee is the best in the world. Wow, how did he react to that? He didn't seem surprised. It was really funny, but he smiled. I think he didn't want to say much. He doesn't, like, you know, he's not, a, he's a very, very humble person. But I could tell that he was, like, really proud. I think it was two days later, I got a call from Mohammed Basil. He was a person working with us. And, uh... He, he apologized, like, yeah, I'm sorry we couldn't answer your call the other day. Um, we, had a, we had a death in the village. It was very sudden. I said, I'm sorry, who passed away? He said, Malik passed away. I said, what? He's like, yeah, like, like, when did he pass away? And he told me the day you, that night that you left. And I had just started this thing. And I, I would have wanted to have at least paid my respects and made it to his funeral. He was buried the next day. There were also other problems stirring. Mokhtar had set up a mill in the capital, Sana, to start preparing beans for shipment back to the U.S. But the Houthis, the northern rebel group, had seized control of Sana and were now in the process of displacing Yemen's longtime government. It was, it was strange because you'd see like a checkpoint. 
these guys like Chunqat, like with their hairs all like you know crazy looking, curly, and they had the, they had children man these checkpoints. And he's like little like like a twelve year old, eleven year old holding a, a gun that looked bigger than him. And like as a rational person, that's a once I mean that's like game over. And there's a rebel group that's taking over the country now. But I just thought, okay, this is a this is a new reality, and and nothing changed. Like literally, like the traffic person was still there, police was still there, everything worked, you know. And so I was like, okay. And this is the way a lot of Yemenis felt. It genuinely didn't seem to matter who was in power or not. So Mokhtar, like most people, quickly learned to shrug it off. But then one day, he was walking down the street on his way to the gym. And then next thing I know, I just felt a huge, like, push. You know, someone like you were just standing still, someone like touches you out of nowhere and you're by yourself. It was weird to feel the wind like that, that force. Then I was knocked down to the floor. And I just heard like my ears like ringing and like there was so much dust. And then I looked not that far from where I was, where I was a block down the block. And there was a, a, a suicide attacker had just, you know, detonated himself in front of the police academy. They targeted a Houthi gathering and listened for the New Year's enrollment. And there were just, there were just so many people screaming and crying. There were body parts, there was blood, you know. And then like, it was like after like a, a moment of, of this like, this weird slow motion phase. I went home and my grandmother and all of them watching what happened in the news and they had no idea that I had, uh, for months actually, they didn't, they didn't know that I was there. They didn't even think about me being like, you know, close to that. Um, and so, yeah, I just, uh, they didn't see anything. And so I didn't tell anybody. What did you tell yourself? I mean, how, how did you, um, how did you process that experience? I think, I think like mentally I tried to block it out. Again, again, like I still didn't see, or maybe I chose not to see, you know, what was happening. Even when he did see what was happening, Mokhtar refused to acknowledge that it might affect his plans. For example, he had previously lined up investors so that he could buy coffee in large quantities in advance of the trade show in Seattle. And of course they asked me a bunch of, you know, how things are. And like for me, like we were still working. We were still, you know, at that time harvesting coffee and processing it. And so, uh, so far things were going as planned. Or at least I, 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 in my updates, I sent them that way. And they were in terms of the coffee work. But then, a few days later, Mokhtar woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of multiple explosions. There were so many that he thought maybe someone was just shooting off a gun at a wedding. That's pretty common in Yemen. And I saw what I thought looked like laser beams that were being shot at the sky. And they were anti-aircraft machine guns. And I went online and just, Saudi Arabia has began a military campaign and formed a coalition with 10 other countries. The Saudis had initiated a bombing campaign to dislodge the Iran-backed Houthis from the capital. So this wasn't some close call that Mokhtar could shrug off anymore. It was now an all-out proxy war between the two most powerful countries in the Middle East. And Mokhtar was literally in the middle of the war zone. And the explosions weren't getting further away. They were getting closer. There was a weapons depot that was targeted multiple times just across the street. Like the mill, the gate was bent inwards from the blast 
And it was sad. It was hard because you, you keep hearing these explosions. You feel them. They're really loud. And then daybreak came in, and you know there's the there's the fajr, the, the uh, prayer of dawn. And so all the minarets start making the call to prayer. And so I thought, you know, I should go to the mosque. There are people there, and I just, just I need to go to the mosque. I need to go there and pray. And then the the imam led the prayer. Normally, it's like a, you know, five, ten minute prayer. But there was a moment where he began making supplication uh, to God. And it went on for over an hour. And you, and you have your hands in the sky. And there was a point where he starts, he asks God for, for, to forgive us for our sins and to, to accept us, to accept our shortcomings. And at the same time, you can still hear and feel their, their airstrikes. You can hear the anti-machine guns. That's how they sound. And then you hear, shh. At that point, we all felt that we, had, we were going to die. And we knew it. And we had that certainty. And so whatever happened didn't matter anymore. After he left the mosque, Mokhtar learned that all the international airports and seaports had been bombed. There was now no way out of the country, and the bombing was expected to continue. His family urged him to go to his grandfather's home in Ib, where it was safer, and just lay low. But these farmers, like, I promised them something. I looked them in their eyes. And I promised them that I would take their copies to these countries, and I would do this for them. That's not worth money. And so in my mind, my goal was to attend this conference next the following week. That was still, like, in my eye, a possibility. So I need to get out as soon as possible. I, I guess what I don't understand is what makes you think that that even makes sense? Because, you know, if the country has descended into a civil war and there's an ongoing Saudi bombing campaign, uh, you know, e- even if you can get the samples to the conference, why do you think that there's going to be a way to ship coffee in bulk to buyers at all? Like, what are you even doing that's worth this kind of risk? That is the question, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. Meg. Maybe, maybe like internally, there's even a deeper reason. Maybe like, I mean, that's that was my mission, and if I took that away, that that like mission to do this project, to, to go to this conference, I don't know if I had anything else to do. And it, it was, it was better for me to to hold on to something instead of letting go of that. And after that prayer, like, I felt like I had died already. And in Islam, we have this concept called tawakkul, which which means that you just, you, you leave it up to God. Mokhtar spent the next several days trying to get out of the country. First, he went to the coalition-held port of Aden, which was a nine-hour drive away through the war's front lines. To get there, he had to talk his way through Houthi checkpoints, then coalition checkpoints, all while taking detours around cities still being bombed by the Saudis. And when he did get to Aden, not only did he miss his ship, he was also thrown in prison for a night for being a suspected Houthi spy. A friend managed to get him out, but there were times, he told me, when he wasn't sure he was going to live to see the next day. And it's it's really hard for me to, to relive this. And to be honest, like I probably won't talk much about it, Joe. But that's when I heard how there were small shipments going out, still making it through the port of Mocha. 
Port of Mocha was the birthplace of the Monk of Mocha, the man who invented modern coffee, the one who started it all. So Mokhtar changed course from Aden to Mocha, and when he got there, he discovered that the port was just a shadow of its former self. No coffee beans had been shipped out in nearly a hundred years. But now Mokhtar was shipping out with his beans, and before he left, he wanted to see the Monk of Mocha's mosque. And the outside looked like it was crumbling. The minaret needed major repairs. And the, some areas were just were, were held up by, by wooden pillars. But you can definitely tell that at one point it was like a really like big deal. And he showed me like on the walls, they have these, um, these engravings of different times and dates of when certain things were built and made. And, and they had all these wonderful lines, like a poem, poetry he wrote, that the angels send blessings to those who have the breath of coffee on their, on their, in their mouth. But that night, we can hear the ground fighting happening. And there were, there were talks of airstrikes happening the next morning, next day. So I thought that I, if I don't leave soon, this window would close. And I heard, you can take a small boat called a Viper, and it'll take you one day to cross. And so in my head, I'm like, Viper, like a Dodge Viper, like something fast, right? He meant fiber, as in fiberglass. So we get up to this thing, and it's just like a small... 16, 18 foot little dinghy with a single Yamaha engine behind it. Which means if it dies, you're stuck. There's no, there's no, that's it. You can't move. But at least with the, with the boat, I had the possibility that maybe I could, there's something, I might be able to like make it. So, you know, I took my laptop, about $5,000 that I hid in my underwear and two luggage bags full of coffee. And, and I remember like right before I left, I texted, I texted my mom. And my brother, through my brother, and my family, I told him, tell my mom that I love her, and to forgive me for anything I've done. And so I remember that was a difficult send. And I went on this boat, and then you know, looking at the ocean, I asked God. I told him, you know, God, help me cross this Red Sea. Mokhtar would make it across the Red Sea and go on to attend the conference in Seattle, where the coffee sold well. Today, you can actually walk into a coffee shop and drink it. Its farmers are growing more and better coffee than ever before. And over the past few years, he's found all sorts of ways to get their coffee from Yemen to the U.S. We, we shipped it through land, through Saudi Arabia, then airlifted it out. One of them, one time we, we, we uh, took it out on a UN charter flight from Yemen into Saudi. But now we just ship it through the, the Gulf of Aden. At that point, Aden was under coalition control or Houthi control? How? It just got liberated. But that's not to say that things are going well in Yemen. It's horrible. Uh, 18 million people are food insecure. That's 70% of the population. Yeah. Cholera has taken this millionth victim and they're for two million people who are now refugees. And so it's just, it, it's the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. It is, and unfortunately, it's, it's, and it's not looking like there's a solution in sight. Even Mokhtar, the eternal optimist, hasn't been able to save everyone. Unfortunately, yeah. To, to, I mean, the first time when I went back to Yemen, there were pictures of the dead that in the village when you enter, you know, passed away. There was one kid who was a really nice kid. He wanted to become a Q grader. You know, he was like 13 or 14 years old. And that was hard for me to see that picture. What what happened there? 
you know, what was, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Supposedly the Houthis were giving away free rifles in a city called Nehm. He wanted to take the rifle and then he can sell it. That was his idea, I guess. But as he, I guess as he went to go pick it up, it was, the, that site was was hit by a, a, an airstrike and he died. I have family members who have been killed, who have been injured, and I have family members now who are who are stuck in, air, in in cities across the world, in Djibouti, in Cairo, Malaysia, who can't come to the U.S. And, and the rest of them, like my, my grandfather even, they're all here now. They're all like, they're, that house, that beautiful giant house is empty now. So he's been here since since 2015. Where, where, where? In here? In Modesto, California, right there in, off the Highway 5, in the middle of nowhere. What's he doing? What's he doing that's in Modesto? Not really much, and that's one of the problems. Like in Yemen, he has... He has a he has a huge role to play. You know, especially for someone like him who, who built this house, it was a life he built for himself there. But on Eid, which is our holiday for Muslims, I go to visit my grandfather in Modesto, and he's sitting there on on his uh, on his porch with a with his head on his like crane on his cane, and just he sees me coming in and he like looks up, he smiles, and I go up to him, I kiss him in the forehead, his forehead and his hands. And I told him, Happy Eid, you know, and then I gave him, it's custom to give people gifts. So I gave him this envelope full of bills, like a wad of cash. And he's like, he looked at it, he's like, where is this from? And I said, and this was not something I had pre-planned or anything. It just, at that moment, I just said, this is from the boy worth less than the donkey. Big thanks to Mokhtar and to author Dave Eggers for sharing Mokhtar's story with us. There is so much more about Mokhtar's life and his travels that we weren't able to include, especially all the other people, both Yemeni and American, who Mokhtar partnered with in his effort to bring Yemen's coffee to the world. If you want to learn more, check out Dave Eggers' book about Mokhtar, The Monk of Mocha. It's available wherever books are sold. And Mokhtar's coffee is called Port of Mocha. And if you want to know where you can buy it and learn more about it, we'll have links to all that on our site, snapjudgment.org. The original score for that piece was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Joe Rosenberg. Now, you've just finished a delicious cup of Snap storytelling, but let me assure you, I've got a hot pot of Snap waiting for your listening pleasure. Subscribe to the amazing storytelling podcast. Don't miss a moment. Snapjudgment.org. Hit us on the Facebook, the Twitter, the Instagram. Man, we've got big news. Put on your cowboy hats because Snap Judgment Live is coming to Nashville. We're going to rock St. Louis, Kalamazoo, other cities being added to the tour. See the world's top storytellers backed by the beats of Bell's Atlas. It's going to change your life. Tickets at snapjudgment.org. Snap was produced by the team that drinks every last drop. Splash some cold water on the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat Mercedes Miller likes cream. Anna Sussman takes sugar. Joe Rosenberg likes his black, if you know what I'm saying. Renzo Half and Half Gorio, Adiza Soy Milk Egan, Liz Yak Milk Mac. The Whiskey, Leon Morimoto, Tail, Water Please to Cot. Eliza, half-calf, double-decap, Smith. 
Shayna, Hot Chocolate Chili. And Jasmine Aguilera prefers a nice 96, 97 Bordeaux first thing in the morning. And even though this is not the news, no way is this the news. In fact, you can find three coffee beans, trade them away to some sucker for a cow, only to wake up hearing someone shouting fee five fo fum and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.